The information in this podcast is for educational purpose only and should not be construed as medical advice. The opinions are the private views of Amy Bess and are not necessarily the views or opinions of UC Health or UC Health Lifeline. Now let's get on with the show. When we're in these situations, you're always bogged down with that. It's not one life, it's two, right? What do I do? Um, At the end of the day, though, if you don't keep mom alive, baby doesn't stand a chance. Welcome to this episode of the Flight Crit Podcast, your place for pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport education. In this episode of the podcast, we're joined by our friend Amy Bess. Amy is the chief flight nurse for UC Health Lifeline, a critical care transport program here in Colorado. She's also a board-certified critical care nurse, certified flight nurse, certified emergency nurse, and is also certified in electronic fetal monitoring. She has over 30 years experience in nursing, of which over 20 years is in OB and high-risk obstetrics. We're really excited to have Amy on the show to share with us her knowledge about caring for patients with antepartum and postpartum hemorrhage. Now let's get on with the podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? We are back with our next lesson, and we have a very special guest uh, in store for you today. Today, we're going to be talking about postpartum hemorrhage with Amy Bess. Amy Bess is an amazing educator and nurse here in Colorado. She is the chief flight nurse for UC Health Lifeline here in Colorado. She's a board-certified critical care nurse, uh, flight nurse, uh, emergency nurse. She's board certified in electronic fetal monitoring. And she is being so, she's been so gracious to come on and talk with us today about uh, postpartum hemorrhage. Amy, thank you very much for being here. We're super excited. Yes, thank you very, very much. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm very excited about being here. So we are. I'm an avid listener. So <laughs> oh, awesome. Hey, we're glad to hear that. So yeah, so Amy, you and I, we've I've taken some classes from you um, so far uh, in in the past, um, and I, Hunter and I had an interesting case not too long ago. And as soon as we finished this case, I was like, we need to talk to Amy about this one <laughs> because you know we're I know <laughs> we are I mean we're primary and adult transport team, and so these high rob calls they're scary for us, and and there's not great education out there for most transport teams on on high rob transports so we're going to talk to you about a case that we had that's awesome and you know it's not unusual because most of the high rob transport calls are done by a primary team they're not done by specialty teams under 20 percent of them actually have a high rob nurse involved so all of us are running crazy like ah right (laughs) Yes. And I think they're one of the most stress-provoking calls um, that's out there for people just because we're all critical care providers. We've got this vast critical care knowledge. Um, and OB is just like a kind of a subset that we don't get a lot of exposure to. However, if you look at the literature, almost 75% of these women are going to have some form of critical care diagnosis. And so one of the things as we look at this case, and I can't wait, um, is that you guys have got to remember, if you understand the little changes of pregnancy, putting your critical care knowledge into that makes the patient super easy to take care of. 
<laughs> Coming from somebody with 30 yeah. years in nursing, you know, almost 20 years in L&D and hi, Rob. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not so sure our audience would necessarily agree with you on that one. <laughs> but hopefully after this conversation, people will feel a little bit more com- comfortable. So, so here's the deal. I'll go ahead and give it to you. Hunter can kind of fill in some of the gaps. But um, so here's the deal. Mid-20s, female, prima gravita, vaginal delivery um, with minor bleeding afterwards. Um, they went in to do a DNC to try and retrieve the placenta. The placenta wouldn't come out. She starts hemorrhaging. Mm-hmm. So they call us. We get there. This this gal, uh, this young lady is is. Um, I feel like she was pretty hypotensive in the 90s, maybe tacky in the 140s to 150s, pale, shocky, shaking. Um, she's on pit um, and um, they have placed a, a Bakri balloon. Now, at the time, I'm like, I don't know what the heck that is. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we quickly realized that we had somebody that we needed to manage quickly at least from the outside she seemed very unstable to us um so any details that i missed there hunter um no i don't think so you you were right on that i think she had lost about a liter or a liter and a half uh while in the operating room from what i can remember um she got uh, a number i don't know exactly how many units but some units uh and then some methogen um and that was about it other than that Right. And so at the point that we rolled in, she had gotten pit, she'd gotten uh, the pit bolus, and then she was on a, an infusion. Yep. Um, and then we're rolling in, and now we have 45-minute transport with this, uh, this young lady. Um, so we suggested TXA. Mm-hmm. Um, we were unsure about continuing the pit um, because our protocols, our guidelines um, – said for retained placenta uh, that uh, Pitocin uh, is contraindicated. After the fact, we looked up the Bakri balloon, and it also was uh, suggestive that it's contraindicated in a patient with a retained placenta. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did call ahead to the receiving facility, talk to the L&D docs. They said just continue the pit. Um, you know, If she becomes hypotensive give her some blood, which we were able to only get one unit from our sending facility. Um, uh, because, I mean, we're talking critical access hospital. They don't have much. Yeah. Right. So, um, so here we are. We've got this gal. You know, we've got a little bit of blood and we got a 45-minute flight. So, I mean, what are you thinking when we tell you that? Um, I think my anxiety level is as high as your guys's were. <laughs> That's a lot of bleeding, right? And one of the things that we don't often realize is that we underestimate blood loss in these guys. Um, they did a, a study. You would think they take them to an OR and you've got a canister with markings, right? It's got to be accurate. It's off by about 75%. Why? Because they're just estimating what's in the canister, not what's in all of what's running off the table, what's in the surgical sponges. And one of the things we know about OB bleeding is that unless you routinely look at a little chart, right, that um, you will underestimate bleeding by about 50%. So if they think she's lost a liter, she's really lost two. 
Okay. And you guys only have three units. <laughs> One unit. So my, I'm a little anxious about this call and, um, you know, we're going to do what we can to get them through it. Um, retained placentas, everybody thinks about pit, you know, with um, helping um, to, as, a, as an adjunct. Um, one of the things about giving more pit is there's a point at which you can give all the pit in the world, but it doesn't do anything more than 20 or 30 units. And the reason for that is that the receptors on the uterus actually become saturated, right? They can't, every receptor has some uh, synthetic oxytocin attached to it and it's all trying to clamp down, but it can't because it's got this placenta in there. Um, even though it's contraindicated in this case, I would have done it too, you know, the Bacri balloon, the pit, because I've got to do something to try and help that bleeding stop. And I'm going to show, I've got a few slides to show you guys just to kind of go through um, some of this and how you might approach it and how it applies to this case. Perfect. Um, and I think it might be helpful. Awesome. Yeah, no, I know. Like, like I was saying, you know, you were the one that we thought of uh, after this call. So I'm so glad to kind of have you here and, and you can talk us through it. So. I love these. So thank you guys so much for inviting me. I just, every time somebody gives me one of these, I'm like, <laughs> well, and, and one thing that I met, I left out is as, as we were packaging, packaging her, they did tell us that they suspected that she had an accreta, um, placenta accreta. So I, I don't know how that kind of changes the scenario as well. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of review what an accreta is for you guys. Perfect. Um, I just want you guys to know first and foremost that, well, um, I, I don't have any allegiance to anybody. Um, but if you want to pay me tons of money to support some product of yours, come <laughs> see me. I can be bought. <laughs> <laughs> and then most of the drugs we talked about today are going to be off-label use. Nobody wants to volunteer their precious um, little new baby to say, hey, oh, sorry, that drug gave your baby a third eye. You know, so it's really hard to get on-label drug use for, for most of these patients. So while it's widely used in OB, just know that some of these are going to be off-label. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We've all been here. This is typically what we see in a postpartum hemorrhage or even an antepartum hemorrhage. It's lots and lots of blood loss um, with these guys. And some of that is due to the physiological changes in pregnancy. It's not very common, but when it is, it can be catastrophic. Um, a postpartum hemorrhage it is classified as 500 ml blood loss or 1,000 after a C-section. And then you will run into somebody who's considered a severe massive hemorrhage. And you guys are already there with this case, right? Yeah. You have one unit of theirs. You've got two units of yours and you're still behind the eight ball. So they're going to be that massive greater than four units of uh, blood loss. And um, that kind of hemorrhage is responsible for 50 to 60% of all obstetrical morbidity, which is, is fascinating. Wow. Um, and devastating for the families who experience it. Um, physiologically wise, their um, progesterone is our main like 
hormone of pregnancy and it speeds up our respiratory system, but it also vas vasodilates our vasculature and they get increased blood volume. So typically one of the challenges we see with these patients, you know, typically when you have a hemorrhaging patient, the first signs and symptoms you see are what? Tachycardia. Tachycardia and hypotension, right? Well, I may not be tachycardic. Why? Because I've got extra volume on board. Okay. And I'm not going to get hypotensive till I actually lose that volume. And so with these women, it's tricky, 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 because your usual clinical signs don't come until they've lost over a quarter of their circulating blood volume. Oh, wow. And most of these women, if we look at them, have thrombophilias associated with their hemorrhages. Um, we know that um, uh, thromboembolism occurs in these patients too, but um, things like hyperhomocysteinemia, which is also called MTHFR, occurs in 10% of pregnancies. And then factor five Leiden is the next most prominent. And then prothrombin G2210A mutation. And then your anti-thrombin three protein C protein S. And the problem with this is it's not just one mutation. Like I said, they usually occur in combination. Is it is it worthwhile asking the question? Um, I mean, I imagine it's always good for history taking. Like, hey, do you have a, yeah. you have a history of, of a clotting disorder or a bleeding disorder? Will that guide your therapy in one way or the other? It might. It might clue you in that you will have one of these, right, at, at delivery or postpartum-wise. Or, you know, you guys had somebody who had a massive hemorrhage in front of you. But if we look at people who have what we call this delayed postpartum hemorrhage, they have heavy flow for... Um, uh, on a short frequency for days on end. And that is as catastrophic as the acute just bleeding out in front of you hemorrhage. So, and they may not know they have a thrombophilia. So one of the other questions I always ask of these guys is, um, do you have a history of fetal loss? Because what we found is in these women with thrombophilias, they oftentimes will have multiple miscarriages, oh. which is interesting. Is that, that's kind of like the body's way of protecting the mother, I guess. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I told you guys that um, a lot of times in the OR, they estimate the blood loss. It's, it's almost always off um, because they don't think about the things outside of those canister. Um, you, we in OB used to do this thing where if you started to hemorrhage, we weigh everything, right? And then we take and put it under the woman and then weigh it again. And then we'd subtract the original weight from, from the, the last weight or the uh, final weight. And then grams equal mLs of blood loss. And so we could kind of calculate how much blood they'd lost just by weighing things. Oh. Um, and one of the things they're starting to use to get blood loss, like a better estimation is the OB units are actually carrying these color cards with the pictures of what a, a hundred cc's on a peri pad looks like, or what three hundred cc's on a peri pad looks like, or what a completely saturated OR sponge looks like. 
And they found by doing that, they could actually get a better estimate of how much blood the patient has lost. So based on this, did you guys happen to see her laying out on a bed with this thousand cc blood loss? No, no, it was all it was all within the within the OR. Okay. Um, yeah. So by the time we actually got to her, she had been moved out to um, to the post op room and uh, or ICU, I guess. And um, and we didn't see it. I didn't see any blood loss. No, I, I didn't see any external blood loss. Um, there was some blood in the bakery, um, the the bag, I guess, the bakery bag where the blood collects, um, but nothing uh, under her or anything like that. Yeah, you don't really need one of these to take a look across the room and go, oh, she looks bad, right? Right. You don't and that was kind of where we were that. at. She looked yeah. bad. She was it's just like. We got to go. <laughs> go and if somebody could just loan me some of their blood on the way out the door, that'd be lovely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you guys are already in this, right? If And, you know, we think about it just being pregnancy. But remember, if they've given birth, they're still in this category because they don't shed the volume, the extra volume until about two weeks postpartum. Oh. And so they're hyper volume loaded still, which is good because the body is, you know, made to protect you from that blood loss that occurs at delivery to a certain extent. And when you cross that threshold, then you um, actually run into these really complicated hypotensive look like garbage. But by that time, I'm over 1500 mLs behind in blood. Wow. So um, it's almost more beneficial to get to the bleeding antepartum patient because in the bleeding antepartum patient, what does she have that the postpartum patient doesn't? A baby. A baby in her belly. And the very first signs of hypovolemic shock oftentimes in pregnancy is fetal monitoring. And so you'll find those kids are tachycardic and then they'll lose variability in their heart rate and then they'll start to have D cells. And by the time they get bradycardic, you're on that pediatric, I've fallen off the cliff and you need to help me now kind of thing. But mom will look great and baby won't. And Mm -hmm. so, and if you think about it, it makes sense, right? That is end organ perfusion that you can monitor at its finest. That's what fetal monitoring is for mom, right? So very interesting. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's helpful to have that little one on board because you can catch these uh, hypovolemic episodes long before you get way behind the eight ball with them. Sure. And then, you know, I don't need um, blood loss to tell me, you know, when my mom's in trouble, they've got this tested scoring tool out there called a maternal early warning signs. Uh, score. So anytime their systolic is less than 90 or over 160 or their diastolic's over 100, their heart rate's under 50 or over 220. Do you remember what her rate was? What her vital signs were? She was like 130, 140. Yeah. Yeah. So see, she meets this. Yeah. Uh, respiratory rate. Blood, I think her initial systolic blood pressure was in the high 80s to low 90s. So she was right on that edge. Yeah. Yeah. And then the respiratory rate can be high. I've seen women who have um, 
ruptured their C-section scars. And the only sign that they had was tachypnea. And so pay attention to their respiratory rate because they can clue you in. And then the second sign they have other than tachypnea is they, when you put them on a fetal monitor, their baby looks awful because why their, their uterus is no longer intact. And so their blood flow is interrupted. Gotcha. Um, oxygen saturation, anytime moms are under 95, it's bad. And anytime they put out less than 35 mLs uh, for over two hours, it's bad. And then agitation, confusion, unresponsiveness. And then uh, patients with preeclampsia reporting a um, headache that just won't go away or shortness of breath. And so anytime those should be evaluated in your patient. And I'm going to come back to your patient, but we're just going to briefly go over some of the pregnant ones that you need to worry about. Um, You guys know abruption where the placenta pulls away from the uterus. And if you look on ultrasound, this dark area up here is actually the blood pooling behind this placenta. Um, This is after the placenta is delivered and you can see the red beefy part, the dark part is where it's separated and the baby has actually lost all of that perfusion distance. So you can see they've lost over half of their perfusion. Um, we, can I ask a question? Can I ask yeah. a question about that? Is it is it true that it's uh, it's? I think I heard like like ten percent, like only about ten percent of abruptions can be seen on ultrasound. Is that right? Or my- that is, uh, it actually only picks up about eighty. Why? Because we have these natural little small lakes in the placenta. Mm-hmm. And so it, it can miss a very tiny abruption, right? Okay. We have a really great tool in EMS for evaluating abruption. Do you guys know what it is? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're going to school us. You're going to make me feel silly. <laughs> no, not at all. People I mean, forget about this, right? I, I'm an old nurse. I come from the see it, touch it, feel it, forget about the monitor. Tell me what your patient looks like, right? And so when I was a young nurse, uh, uh, medical, an OB doc said, always take and do a fundal height on somebody. So Mm. if their fundus is here and I put my hand here, I can take a pin and draw a line here, right? When I go back to remeasure and now uh, my hand is here, but my line is here, what's existing in this space in the abruption patient is blood. Oh, I see. So kind of in that, that acute abruption phase where you have an exciting yeah. uh, hematoma. Yeah. And then, you know, if they're bleeding, this is called a concealed abruption. This is marginal. Marginal are, are nice because they're bleeding, right? You've got a clue that something's going on. And then if left long enough, these um, concealed abruptions, they continue to contract. They can actually get to the point where they... Um, blow the placenta off the wall of the uterus. Wow. And we're going to remind me of this when we get to postpartum because um, nitro is really great. Sometimes you'll see OR docs. Well, I'll just tell you now. OR docs in the postpartum patients, sometimes we'll give a patient nitro, but they have to be in an OR setting. And why is that? It causes vasodilatation. It causes a bunch of blood to rush behind that placenta. And if you've got a retained placenta, it can push it off the wall of the uterus sometimes. Mm -hmm. But if you've got 
some placental abnormalities like your accreta that we you were talking about, it's only going to make your bleeding worse. And so you have to be in this controlled environment and ready for that massive hemorrhage. Um, I always tell people out in the field, don't do it. Just don't <laughs> give any of that for that. You don't want to deal with what comes next. It's not <laughs> fun. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we all know that abruption is usually um, just, um, you know, really rigid abdomen, a lot of pain, a lot of contractions. Their abdomens feel tight. Um, and uh, it, uh, usually no when you have an abruption. Uh, placenta previa, on the other hand, they don't. And that's where their placenta grows up to or over the uterus. You can have a partial one or one that's low lying. Most of these are going to resolve and people are like, well, how does that happen, right? So I have this uh, placenta that's growing over my cervix and it's attached to the wall of the uterus. And as the uterus grows, it pulls that placenta up the wall of the uterus. So they will find a lot of women around 20 weeks and about 80%, 80, 85% of those patients, their placenta previa um, actually resolves on its own by term. Which oh. I find fascinating, right? Yeah, they don't but teach if it, that Yeah, but if it doesn't, then they get this bright red, painless vaginal bleeding. This is our call in the middle of the night to the scene for a pregnant mom who got up because she thought her water broke, and you've got like a scene out of Carrie, right, with all the blood and <laughs> looks like mass murderers gone on because it's six hundred mLs a minute going across that pregnant uterus. Their first bleed is usually at 28 weeks. Their second at 32. And like I said, most of those resolve. This is an interesting one. We see this a lot in twins um, and multiples, but it's called the vasoprevia. And it's actually, if you look at this placenta, where the, the umbilical cord vessels grow through the membranes. Oh. And so imagine rupturing somebody's water and catching one of these. Oh. And you can see on this one in the blue, they actually did that on this outer vessel here at the very bottom of the picture before you get to the cord, you can see that interruption. Wow. And they will get port wine colored amniotic fluid and then the baby will immediately get uh, bradycardic. And so um, those patients can bleed out. It's more um, baby bleeding out, right? I love this. You will never get eat warm food or get out on time. So don't bother making plans for right after work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but other things that we run into in our field are trauma. And you would think that abruption would be the, the first thing we run into. And while we run into a lot of that, splenic rupture is actually the most common thing that happens during pregnancy, uh, during trauma. Uh, and that blood in their belly makes them really, really makes the uterus really, really irritable and causes it to contract. Most of these they're going to watch unless they're a really high grade bleed and then they will take them to surgery and actually um, take them out. But uh, in trauma, splenic rupture is what we see. And in those women, uh, we see increasing abdominal circumference. The other one that's not really common, but that we see a lot of is uterine rupture. And I kind of alluded to this with a patient who had a previous C-section. 
you can see uh, this opening here. And if you guys look here, here's a baby in a sack here, or here's a partially um, ejected fetus from a uterus. And when we get on scene, we'll feel two pieces, one that's the free floating baby and one that's kind of the trying to clamp down uterus, but there's still a lot of blood coming across there. And so it, it actually uh, presents a really big problem for us um, in the field. On, assess, on assessment uh, of that, that patient where, you know, they've been in a, they've been in a, some kind of trauma, MVA, whatever it might be, and they've got that abdominal pain, you're, you're palpating the belly. If you, you might actually start feeling like the fetal parts, right? Like you yeah. can discern like, this is a leg, this is a head, this is an arm mm -hmm. that might clue you in to this, this being a, a ruptured placenta, right? Yes. Great, great. Um comment um you guys oh, ever yeah, seen a really loving picture of the belly with the foot that's pressing out on the belly and you can see the outline of the foot every <laughs> time i see that picture i start screaming she's got a uterine rupture get her <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it looks so great but really it's terrifying it's like oh no because the uterine wall guys is about that thick right and so it's a thick thick muscle when you look at it and so to have something that outlined, you're like, oh my, that's not good. I don't care how precious you think that is. Get back out of the hospital. <laughs> I have an idea that it's Photoshop, but still, it just makes me as an OB nurse go, oh no. <laughs> so let's get back to your postpartum hemorrhage, right? Yeah. So I kind of want to look at some of your etiology of what might have caused her postpartum uh, hemorrhage. And you guys kind of nailed it right off the bat. The first T is tissue. So retained placenta, and that's indeed what she had. Um, I'm going to delve into the accreta in creta here in just a minute. Tone is um, how well it tightens up after they deliver, right? If I have twins and you've been pitting me or making my uterus contract for 12 hours solid, what do you think my uterus does once I expel those babies? It's tired. Um, it just doesn't want to do anything, right? Think about when you go to the gym, right, and get a really good leg workout in for the day and you start to walk to the car. What do your legs feel like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I hope I don't fall on the way to the car. That, yeah. that, that person's going to think I'm really dumb. But that muscle gets tired and they do get tired. Trauma can be it. And we kind of talked about that. And then we talked about these thrombin coagulation disorders and DIC. Um, if you have an antepartum hemorrhage or you were induced, um, you have a higher risk for postpartum hemorrhage. If you have chorioamnionitis, which is the membrane around the baby that, you know, that sack of water we break, if it yep. gets infected or if mom's been ruptured for a long time and she develops an infection, this chorioamnionitis can really uh, lead to postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, maternal anemia, obesity, maternal obesity, multiple babies in one uterus, uh, preeclampsia, high blood pressure, uh, first-time moms. How many of these have I hit for you guys already in your, <laughs> in your case study, right? It's a few, yeah. And a prolonged labor. Um, Uterine inversion, we've always heard that that's possible. I put a picture in here because it doesn't ever look like what people think it will look like. 
but it's an inside out uterus. And what do we want to do with those? Uh, get them to the hospital. Uh, put them right back in. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd say that. But the <laughs> answer is I'm going to take them and I'm going to shove them back in. And that's why I kind of show you how they do that, right? And that might take, if it was my uterus, it would definitely take some uterine relaxation muscles like TURB, in which case my bleeding is going to get worse, right? Because I've just relaxed the uterine muscle and some pain medication like fentanyl. Okay. But you're going to want to push that back in. Um, everybody thinks, oh, I'm just going to take this fist, but you actually cup that uterus and push it back in. Okay. Uh, and then fast labors, any kind of lacerations, and anybody we've given tocolytics like MAG or TURB to, you should really suspect a postpartum hemorrhage in them because they're bleeding so much. So let me ask you about that that inverted uterus. So you've given them some TURB, you've given them some fentanyl, you, you, um, you, you push it back in. Now are you going to follow that up with? Um, some pit to, you know, ensure that it's not continuing to bleed? Yeah. And, you know, in a, in a minute here, we're going to review how to properly rub down a fundus without doing that, without pushing it inside out or prolapsing it. Um, but yeah, you want them to clamp down after that. So if you've given them TURB, you're kind of fighting a battle here, right? At that point. And so I, you know, it's, it's like, oof, this could get interesting. And like I said, you can give her 30 units of PIT or you can give her 80 units of PIT, but at some point those Pitocin receptors become saturated and they're not going to do any, any more. Do you guys carry Cytotec in your yes. bags? Yes. Yeah. So Cytotec is a really great way to, um, to uh, cause um, uterine clamp down too. Um, and um, you can give it postpartum. So if you have postpartum hemorrhages, throwing Cytotec either, um, you've got to make sure they're not the tiny little enteric-coated pills because if they've got a coating on them, you actually have to sit there and score them so that they can be absorbed in that area. But most of the Cytotec now comes in an uncoated uh, pill that you can insert into the vagina or the rectum. Um, if I'm bleeding a lot, I'm probably going to pick the rectum because it's not going to wash out with all the bleeding, if that makes sense. And you can do anywhere from 600 to 1,000 per rectum. We're going to talk a little bit. I'm going to show you some of the drugs and what they do. It does have some side effects you want to be aware of, and so we'll go over those in just a minute. Yeah, And I guess if, you, if you've just done that, if you've just you know kind of reinverted the, the uterus and you're already in a good position for that bimanual massage. Which yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know about you guys. I've been an OB nurse a long time. Either one of you want to stick your hand in there and do bimanual <laughs> massage? No. no, no, me either. So anything I can do to keep my hands out of there, either medication wise or blood administration, I'm going to do. But if I need to do bimanual massage, I can. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, Okay, so you talked about uh, an accreta. And so there are three um, types of abnormal placental implantation that will definitely result in rapid massive blood loss. The first is an accreta. Um, normally, 
Uh, there's a separation between the uterine lining and the baby's placenta where baby and mom interface. Mom's uh, vessels, spiral arteries come in like this and babies um, come in like this and there's passive oxygenation and diffusion across those. Remember all the endocytosis, penocytosis we all took 8 million years ago yeah. happens at the placenta level, but this placenta does not like grow through and into the uterine lining. And when it does, it's called an accreta. If I pull on this, I can invert a uterus, right? Trying to get her placenta out because it's attached to the wall of the uterus, right? Mm -hmm. But because she can't really expel it because it's attached to the wall of the uterus, she needs some kind of surgical intervention. And so she's going to bleed until that thing comes out. And I've still got 600 mLs a minute coming across. So that's, that's the situation you guys were in when you arrived at this patient. So their thought process with the Bacri, I'm going to show you what those look like in a minute, is to put this balloon in there and cause some pressure against that to try and tamponade it off and then give her Pitocin to squeeze her uterus down. Uh, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, an increta, and you can see these pictures of the accreta. You can see how this placenta grows into the uterine lining. On the increta down here in the bottom, you can see how it grows through the uterine muscle. And if it's bad enough, it can grow through the uterus, which is called a percreta. Um, and then if there's, it can actually attach to intestines, it can attach to a bladder, it can attach to your abdominal wall, and that bleeding is not going to stop until we extract all of that placental tissue. Wow. It's just going to continue to bleed. And these become really, really massive transfusion um, cases. Wow. So I have a question for you, Amy. With, with these uh, abnormal placental um, implantations, is this something we can diagnose on ultrasound prior to delivery and ensure the patient's getting to a tertiary care center knowing that they are high risk for bleeding during delivery? So yeah, when you look at these cases, I've got an ultrasound up here in the top. Do you see all the really big holes in this? It gives you kind of a Swiss cheese Mm -hmm. looking appearance. And so a lot of times these docs will know ahead of time that um, their patient has an accreta, increta, percreta, and they can plan accordingly for, for that. Okay. And what are some of the, I think I've heard that um, history of C-sections can increase this. What are some other risk factors? Are there other, is it just Sometimes it happens, or what are some other risk factors with it? Um, some of the other risk factors for this, uh, smoking dries up your risk of accreta, increta, and percreta. Actually, more babies drives up your risk of having one of these, a previous section, because placentas like to implant on scar tissue. So if you've had any DNC where you've had thinning of the uterine wall, or you punctured the uterine wall, that placenta will tend to implant there. So getting a good surgical history, uterine surgical history on these guys, okay. super important. If they've had a 
placenta previa, they're more at risk for an accreta, increta, percreta. Okay. And I think the single most important one is actually um, that they uh, that they have had a, a section before. Okay. 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 That's what we see the most of. Okay. Great. So let's talk about how we manage these guys, right? We need lots and lots of big IVs. People say two. I'm like, if you can get three or four, you're, you're just as good. Um, if you're not at a critical access hospital where they have some blood, take some units with you. If you are at a critical access, take all they can give you, right? Yeah. Um, and just be really, really cognizant uh, of... Um, you know, that they are going to lose a lot of blood. Um, like um, when I've seen these patients, I've seen anywhere from 26 units to 75 units of blood products put wow. into one person. Wow. And, you know, it only takes about three to do three to four to do a complete auto, uh, complete transfusion of their blood. So when you're looking at somebody who's gotten 75 units, you know, we're way past calcium and all the extra stuff, right? Yeah. That person has none of theirs and six more of six other people's blood now in their system. And so um, it can be um, very um, uh, undaunting how much blood products you will, you will use in these patients. Um, you want to monitor their vital signs. I think one of the hardest things for me coming from OB up over into the adult side of it um, is that I was used to trending vital signs on these patients every five minutes or more frequently. Why? Because they've got a little elevated heart rate and their blood pressure's a little bit low in their pregnancy, right? And so what I'm doing is looking for that little bump in heart rate and that little tiny bump in blood pressure to clue me in before I get to being 1500 mLs behind the eight ball mm-hmm. on these patients. And so I, you know, the medics would always slap my hand and say, would you let the first blood pressure finish before you try and get the next one. I'd be like, okay, but I really just want lots of blood pressures here. Yeah. Um, and because it's a if good you wait, habit to get into with these patients. Yeah. I and mean, what did you say? What did you say? Like 600 mLs per minute yeah. across that placenta. And they're already 1500 cc's behind by the time you even start to see a shift. So now if you catch that shift, you know, what do we always do? Oh, I don't like that one. Let me cycle it again. You know, right. Two minutes, three minutes. And at that point, they've already lost another two liters of blood. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so now you see why I am I push the button a lot. <laughs> do they, uh, in L&D, uh, when you're managing these patients, do they ever put in A-line so that you can monitor their, their real-time p- pressures? Yeah. A-lines are super beneficial in these patients. They're a good idea for our critical care teams, definitely within our scope, yeah. right? It's real-time measurement, not in, non-invasive where you're trying to keep up. And if they lose enough blood, you guys have had this happen. Your blood pressure machine is like, I can't, I can't even find that the heartbeat <laughs> at this point. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And you spend how long troubleshooting that 
while you're losing valuable time in this hemorrhage case, right? Mm -hmm. So um, blood warmers, pressure bags, uh, fluid in these patients. Um, a lot of these moms um, in antepartum situations, barring any preeclampsia or heart issues, will pour a couple of liters into these patients. And they do quite well with that. Just remember that if you're losing blood, you're probably going to be hemodiluting that patient because they've already lost the extra, right? Yeah. If, um, like I said, if they're still pregnant, just don't forget the baby because that is like having an A-line in. I can just watch a baby get tachycardic and tachycardic, and then the squiggly line flattens out and they lose all their variability, and now I'm doing D-cell stuff, right? That's and so that baby is a really good end-organ perfusion uh, measurement of that patient. Um, we forget the simple things, like if they're pregnant, make sure they're on their left side. And this is silly, but people think about left side as cardiac output. Respiratory-wise, if they're supine, they lose 25% of their functional residual capacity. So it affects their respiratory, ref as respiratory effort as much as it does their cardiac output. So putting them to the side is good. And then moms are obligate mouth breathers when they're pregnant because they they get very edematous. All that progesterone vasodilates everything. So they get a lot of capillary engorgement. And so putting a nasal cannula on them is like throwing a deck chair off the Queen Mary and calling it lighter. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> you really want to put them on a tight face mask to adequately deliver oxygen to these guys. The next one makes me like, it's as bad as walking in and knowing she's hemorrhaging, but that's RSI and that's intubating these patients earlier um, rather than later because one minute of apnea, their PAO2 goes down about 29%. Hmm. Ours will go down about 11%, right? So they're gonna desat a lot faster um, the bad thing about intubating them is uh, pregnant moms are automatically in a difficult airway algorithm. They took anesthesiologists, tried to intubate patients, pregnant patients. They were eight times more likely to fail in the pregnant patient. And that's the patient who isn't hemorrhaging, who hasn't got preeclampsia or eclampsia. That's just the normal run-of-the-mill OB patient. And if they failed, she was 13 times more likely to die. So we really, you know, that to me gives me a really tight pucker factor for intubation in these patients as well. And that goes the same for the postpartum patient. Why? They're in that same state. They haven't gotten to shed all that blood loss quite yet, you know? And so their tissues tend to be, even when they bleed a little bit, um, uh, have a, a, a little bit of engorgement. Um, if there's an unstable mom and a live baby, we section them. We never give tocolytics with these patients. Why? Well, it's going to relax the uterine muscle and make the bleeding worse and their hemodynamic status worse. If mom's unstable and baby's dead, we give them blood. Um, if delivery is imminent, we let them deliver vaginally. Otherwise, we take them for a C-section. And if it's a stable mom, we actually look at baby, right? That's end organ perfusion. If baby looks really, really bad, we'll do a vaginal delivery, which is a category three tracing. 
um, or a C-section. If baby looks really, really great, we're going to observe them and try and get them as far as we can with that bleed. Here's a really good example of how to massage a fundus, right? I want to protect that fundus and I want to squish it between my two hands. If I forget this hand at your pubic bone, remember it was this big and I'm squishing it down and I can actually push it right out and prolapse it. So always use that hand guard and squish it in between your two hands. And is that your landmark right at the, right at the, at the pubic bone? Right. So I'm going to take mom's pubic bone is here. I can feel it. I'm going to set my hand down right like this Gotcha. in front of that pubic bone and then squish between gotcha. the two. Yeah. We don't want to turn one problem into another problem. No, you don't. And then, um, Again, same kind of thing, monitoring their vital signs. They're really not any different. This is going to be massive blood loss. And I always prepare even in a normal delivery for this because if she didn't get any prenatal care and this is her fifth baby, she could have an accreta, increta, percreta, right? And so you just never know what's on the other side of that unit. And this is nowhere in the literature, but it's most L&D nurses um, experience in life. And that is that um, you can um, always count on a redhead to bleed like nobody's business. A red. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> I heard that once before, and I, I think that's so fascinating. I think that's amazing. Huh. So if you have a redhead, be, be cautious. Be cautious, be prepared, right? <laughs> uh, just a little tip from the LND nurse. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So let's look at some of these meds we give, right? So we usually start with PIT. We give 10 to 20 units and 500 uh, mLs of normal saline. And again, here's that 10 units versus 80 units. At some point, you're going to um, flood those receptors. And so only so much is going to work. Most teams either give 20 or 30 units. Mm -hmm. What's your, what did you guys end up giving her? Uh, we, we, we didn't give her any more. She had already gotten the bowls and we just continued yeah. to drip at six. Yeah. It's like, Hey, they've done it. So we're done here. And IV and IM, um, we never give pit IV. It can cause massive hypotension, EKG, ischemic changes, cardiovascular collapse and arrest. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> um, it's IM onset is uh, um, about three to five minutes. Um, and then IV, if it were to be given, it would onset in a minute. Methergen always comes in a little uh, brown vial. It's very light sensitive and it's 0.2 milligrams IM. It's an alpha constrictor and a very potent alpha constrictor. I watched somebody give that IV and it put mom into coronary spasm and she had an MI and died. Wow. She actually dissected her coronaries. This again is another med that's given only IM. Um, we don't give methogen to anybody with hypertension, migraines, or Raynaud's. They have more potential to decompensate. Wow. A cytotech is a prostaglandin. You can give 60 to 1,000 milligrams vaginally or rectally. I told you about the enteric coating. Um, the interesting thing about these prostaglandins like cytotech, hemabate, um, 
they almost always come with an accompanying fever in about one to two hours uh, mm -hmm. after administration. And it will reside about after about three hours. The other thing is it induces like um, nausea, vomiting, and massive diarrhea. So when it's given in the OB units, they tend to give Lamotil with it and Tylenol to kind of um, combat the side effects of the prostaglandin. And then hemabate, again, a prostaglandin, it's 250 mics IM. We don't give it to asthmatics or anybody with cardiovascular complications. It causes the same fever, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Um, interesting, I have seen hemabate given directly into the uterine muscles. So you talk about manual um, massage by manual massage. Yeah. I watched that doc put his hand in there. He was doing this. He's like, hand me that hemabate. And he went in and he's like, yep, there it is. And just put it into the uterine muscle. Oh, it wow. is a muscle. It does work. Um, I had never seen anybody do that, but it worked like a champ. I, as a, as a transport provider, if you want to do that, that's all fine with me. <laughs> but um, I have seen it done. If you get into a, a rock and a hard place and want to suggest that to your sending provider. Gotcha. Let me ask you real quick before we move on, because I think that that's, that's all really good. That's great stuff to review. Um, I think Pitocin is going to be that one drug that we're going to see most often. Yeah. Right. So um, as far as kind of that emergent uh, administration of the bolus, that 10 to 20 units, maybe 30 units, whatever it might be, um, how are you, how do you see that given most often? I see you, you have here 10 to 20 units and 500 mLs. Um, is that pretty standard 500 mLs and just run it wide open? Wide open. Okay. So not pushing, but you're getting it in quickly. Especially I'm bleeding, right? Because I want to get the whole 10 to 20 to you as fast as I can. And I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone. I'm hoping your uterus does this, but I'm giving you fluid too. Right. So it's a nice combination. Um, I have seen people put 10 to 20 in a thousand um, or even 30 and 500 or 30 in a thousand, but I've never seen anything more than 20 or 30. Gotcha. And 10 units I've seen given the IM into the, into the leg. Okay. So normally right, if we're giving something IM, we're, we're, you know, increasing the dose. So What's the efficacy of the IM administration versus the um, kind of the rapid IV bolus? Um, you know, it's uh, like I said, onset maybe with the IV administration. Mm -hmm. um, we just, uh, it peaks like a couple minutes quicker. Okay. But still the same effect. Yeah. Nice. And either way, you're going to saturate those receptors at some point and, and no more. You know, it's not like if I give you more, it's going to help more, right? So it's just kind of a one-time, one-and-done kind of thing, which is why you see them do usually PIP, methogen, and then move on to one of these prostaglandins. The one we forget about is this little agent here, TXA. Ah. TXA was actually developed for heavy menstrual periods. That's where it came out of OB patients and GYN patients. Um, the indications for giving it an OB are definitely the same as if you were going to give it uh, to a trauma patient, right? 
Um, a lot of times if they, you ask me about, do they know sometimes by ultrasound, if they have these accreta, increta, percretas by ultrasound and they do Hunter. And so sometimes they will take this TXA and they will give it the minute they make the skin incision, they will give them TXA in anticipation of the hemorrhage that is going to follow. And they give one gram over five minutes, you know, with the skin incision, or you can follow the usual one gram over 10. Um, And I have seen, um, there is some studies out there about giving a second gram. I I haven't read enough to be able to talk much about that in OB, but I do know they give these first doses. Most of the time we're not around for the second dose anyway, right? If we, if we if we're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just we just did a, a an interview uh recently not a, not an OB doc, um a, a trauma doc. Um and he was talking about um you know, if, if you're going to do the 1 gram, do the second gram infusion, but you know, there's even uh some evidence that suggests doing giving the the TXA in trauma as a as a push, as a 1 or 2 gram push. So it'll be interesting to see how that translates to the OB world or if it, if it does. Yeah, it will be interesting. Um, it's kind of interesting that they kind of started with the research, right, and developed it. And then they stopped at a certain point. Now trauma's running with it. And you've got the trauma camps are like this. Give it. Don't give it. It's going right. to cause more clotting down the road. Um I can deal with clotting down the road. I can't reverse dying down the road. So, you know, if you have to give it to these patients, do it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we talked, uh, or maybe we didn't, but Curlix, um, like if I have somebody who's got a really bad laceration, maybe they've lacerated through their vaginal wall into some big vessel, tore as the baby came out, um, postpartum, I can actually use... Uh, Curlex soaked in one in 10,000 epi. Um, I put a little normal saline in there and then I soak the whole roll and then you can insert it vaginally and it will cause uh, cramping down. And I have seen thrombin used in these patients, you know, like we use in the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, you put 5,000 units uh, in five mLs and you soak it, the Curlex on it and you can use it just like you do epi in some of these uh, lacerations. Now, if it's not a laceration, if it's not a lower like C-section scar that's along the bottom, right above the cervix, none of this is going to work, right? Because if it's coming from high up, because my placenta has grown through my through my uterine wall, none of this will ever reach that. It's not deep enough to be applied topically, so to speak. Gotcha. Um, and then this one is one we always forget about, but um, I'm going to give my two cents being the labor and delivery nurse I am. Nipple stimulation is really, really good for helping the pituitary gland pre- create uh, oxytocin. So if mom's able to put baby to breast and breastfeed, it will actually slow down her bleeding because her uterus will start to clamp down from that action too. And so um, breastfeeding is one of the really good ways that we create uterine compaction or what we call involution after the baby's delivered. And so great way if you've got somebody who's breastfeeding 
to uh, uh, who wants to breastfeed to stop their uh, postpartum hemorrhage for sure. In hospital, go ahead. Let me ask you a real quick question about that. Um, so we, you had already mentioned, right, if, if we're giving them Pitocin, we eventually saturate all of those receptors. Yeah. Right? So are the receptors for the uh, oxytocin and Pitocin the same, or could you get an additional benefit from the breastfeeding if you've already kind of maxed out your oxy? You know, when somebody's bleeding like this, I'm going to pull out every stop I have and just hope for the best, right? (laughs) It may help me. It may not, depending upon the saturation. Um, Those synthetic, Pitocin is synthetic. Oxytocin, which is produced by the body, is um, not. And so you, you have to wonder if it does a better job of getting to the receptors than the synthetic drug does. And so uh, to me, it's worth a try in these patients. Uh, um, I have had people said, well, what if baby can't breastfeed? Well, you could, if mom's with it enough, this patient is not, she's pale, looks like she's about to die. She's bleeding everywhere. But if she's with it enough early in the hemorrhage, you can have her rub her own nipples between her fingers to kind of stimulate that if baby isn't able to breastfeed. And then in hospital treatments, of course, um, we tend to use more LR in these patients like trauma. Normal saline causes hyperchloremic acidosis in them. But I have seen uh, volume expanders like Hespan or albumin. And so if you're in that critical access hospital, I might ask, hey, do you guys have any Hespan or albumin to go with this one unit of blood, (laughs) right? Because it could help me as I trickle down the road to kind of try and build some intervascular uh, volume for this patient. And then um, whole blood, pack cells, FFP, liquid plasma, cryo, there's kind of this whole thing with, I give four units pack cells, I give four units of FFP, I give a platelet paresis pack and one cryo, and I start the, the cycle all over again. And you can see how you can get 10 units like that, right? And so if they continue down this cycle, that's pretty much the algorithm that they're showing you over here on the um on the uh, right-hand side, and then drugs, PIT, Cytotec, Hemobate, and then they usually add in that Tylenol and Lamotil to combat side effects. I don't need you to have massive diarrhea along with your bleeding out hemorrhage, right? Just adds to the hypovolemia. Yeah. So let's talk about these little devices that you guys ran into, right? There's uh, three that kind of have drainage tips. There are two that don't. Um, there's a new one on the market. Um, if you look at this slide, the first picture on the left, uh, actually the Bakery is the one, the second one, and it has a drainage uh, tip on it. The problem with the Bakery is that my uterus just had this really big baby, and now I'm going to put this balloon in it, and my uterus doesn't want to contract down anyway, so I start filling it up. My, my uterus is like, okay, I can get bigger. Okay, I can get bigger. Okay, I can get bigger, right? So there's not like it, like a lot of pressure. There is some, and the bleeding will kind of create a tamponade effect. Um, But remember that uterus just held a baby this big, and now is probably this big. And so it can expand quite a ways around these balloons. 
I have seen Foley's used mostly for drainage out of the uterus, not really for compression. I've seen people try Sensteak and Blakemore tubes um, for compression. Um, they had a Roush balloon, which is on here. It's the Foley looking one with a really big balloon on it. Um, while that provides um, compression, it doesn't provide for any drainage. So you get a lot of backup behind that balloon. And I definitely, as an EMS provider, be looking at a fundal height with these, right? Where did I start? And where am I now? And am I continuing to bleed back behind that balloon? And then there is this condom catheter one um, uh, that uh, you can use too if you want to tie a condom around a Foley catheter and pump air into it or, or water into it. The problem is you don't know when that condom's going to break and uh, how much you can put into it as far as fluid. And if it slips off, you've now got another item up in there that you've got to retrieve. So um, very interesting. I'm going to give a uh, I, I'm not a Jada rep by any sensation, but this is a new product out there called a Jada and it's this green ring. And if you look closely, you guys can see the suction holes on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so they insert it into the uterus and then they essentially just took it up to wall suction at 80 to hundred. And what it does is suck the uterus down around the um, device. And so it'll be interesting to see what kind of effect that has on our postpartum patients, our hemorrhage patients as we go forward. Yeah. I know that um, we, our, our center here in Colorado has called uh, several times to ask us, do you guys carry suction? Yeah, we do. Just remember that you will need a portable suction device to get them from your vehicle to wherever you're going. Otherwise, you're going to let that suction off and, and make the hemorrhage worse. Oh, so this is something that continuous suction has to be continued. Yeah. It's like uh, if you can do a chest tube, right? You want to keep it to suction while you're transporting from vehicle to hospital. Um, this is another device you, and this I think is even more important in that if you let it off, that uterus is going to relax and we're back to square one. It may take you a while to get it sucked back down around the device. Amy, is it pretty common practice with those tamponade devices due to the low, um, you know, the muscle not having that contriction that you're giving pit when you're doing those that well to increase that tone? Therefore, to help kind of have it contract around that balloon, is it yeah, kind of, you know, the thought process, right? Is that sure. I've got this balloon, I've got this big floppy uterus, I got to have something that helps it kind of clamp down and hence the, um, the uh, pit or methogen or hemabate okay. to kind of aid in that process. Okay, good to know. There are some in-hospital treatments they can do. I've seen women taken to IR and they do intrauterine uh, artery uh, embolization. Um, they can sew patches to areas, both externally and internally. So if you have an accreta or increta, they can remove that part of the muscle and then patch it up um, or suture it up. Um, I've seen these sutures done where they kind of come low across the cervix and then they run sutures up and over the top of the uterus and they cinch them down to make that uterus contract. Um, 
I've seen uh, these uterine uh, tourniquets where they just kind of tie off right above the cervix to stop the uterine blood flow to the uterus. Um, and then finally, um, the last ditch effort uh, in the bleeding uh, cascade is a hysterectomy, and that's to take out uh, everything, uterus, fallopian tubes, um, ovaries. They may leave the ovaries. They may leave the fallopian tubes. Um, they may leave part of the cervix. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a last ditch effort to try and save people. And I have seen them blow through all of this only to have mom expire as well. Do you have any, anything that you want to kind of add kind of as a, as a, um, last few for pearls of wisdom from your experience that, uh, you, you, we haven't covered so far? You know, I think that when we're in these situations, you're always bogged down with that. It's not one life, it's two, right? What do I do? Right. Um, at the end of the day, though, if you don't keep mom alive, baby doesn't stand a chance. Right. So when you get down to decisions of should I or shouldn't I, always involve your medical control in those but err on the side of mom, because a really wise OB told me once, a fetus surrounded by a dead mother does not do well. Um, and so if you want to keep that baby alive, you really have to keep mom alive. Um, these postpartum hemorrhages or antepartum hemorrhages are always uh, challenging for us as providers because they are are almost always rapid, massive blood loss, right? And so maintaining that hemorrhage control, mass transfusion control, hemorrhage kind of strategy is super important to both mom and baby. Wonderful. That's awesome. Thank you. I, I think that that's really going to be um, super beneficial to everybody who listens to this. Um, I'm not so sure that it's going to necessarily kind of quell all of the fears. <laughs> I'm transporting. Not a chance because I've been doing this forever and I'm still like, oh gosh, yeah, this right. is going to be a bad day. <laughs> right. For sure. Oh, good grief. Well, thank you very much, Amy. I sure do appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom uh, with us. And I found that tremendously beneficial. Any last words you want to share? I just want to say congratulations to the two of you for um, getting through that because here's that scenario of mom with a critical care diagnosis. We don't do OB, but we do critical care, right? And if you can manage the critical care piece of this, you can make that okay for mom and baby. And so kudos to you guys. You did a stellar job. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Amy, if people want to reach out to you with any questions, where can they, where, how can they reach out to you? Um, flight RN Amy at Gmail and it's AMI. Perfect. Flight RN Amy. Great. Well, well, I'll put that in the, the show notes as well. Again, thank you very much. This was wonderful. And uh, hopefully we can have you back again sometime. Thank you guys for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. I want to invite you to head over to academy.flightgrip.com to check out the rest of our courses. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. 
Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Flight Crit Podcast. Bye for now.